Welcome back to For Fintech's Sake. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit, U.S. Content Director at Money 2020, co-founder and hype man for the VSUM community, and most of all, your unqualified host. This week's guest is Albert Saniger, CEO at Nate. Nate's revolutionizing e-commerce payments in a beautiful way. This was a blast of a conversation. Albert is a ray of good humanity, sunshine in the world of e-commerce and fintech. And I really think you're going to enjoy getting to know him just as much as I did. Without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Albert at Nate. doing it in person but we'll we'll add it to the list of things that we don't actually get to do the way that we want to do in the midst of everything else in the world since 2020 i'm telling you i'm not that i just can't live in, in a pandemic any longer i'm just not that kind of person i love being with people i love being with my team i just it's you know it drains my energy to like work from home and work remotely and not see other humans and these folks who are like so excited about the metaverse i'm like what like more time in like digital <laughs> spaces like i want to be without technology with other human beings i don't know that's me yeah i would just i think i think if we could just rebrand we just need to rebrand nature as the metaverse and i think we're solving problems you know if we rebranded the woods because a lot of Gen Z hasn't maybe experienced the woods. So maybe we take them to the woods and we're like, this is what Zuckerberg's been talking about. This is the metaverse. And then we just trick them and then they actually enjoy the outdoors. And then all of a sudden we have a decent society again. It's like the <laughs> best freaking metaverse you could ever imagine. And it's like literally out, right outside. Just walk out and see it for yourself. It's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm very much on the same page with you. I have, a, I have to be... It's, it's almost like you're not allowed to defend Rogan, defend Dave Chappelle or say anything negative about the metaverse right now publicly or about Web3. You know, it's like those are the hot button oh topics. God. It's just hilarious oh, yeah. how they all come together. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't you dare touching Web3. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we don't even need to talk about the other two. But anyways, where are you? Where are you today? Where are you calling from in your uh, in, in your in, in your quarantine? <laughs> I'm in I'm in New York City. I'm at my office and I'm in one of the rooms that is not a meeting room. This is actually a mother's room turned meditation space. Uh, so one of the requirements by New York law is that above a certain a number of employees, you have to have a room for people to breastfeed and sort of take care of their babies. And this is that room. Um but so far, uh, they're only, I have, I have a six month old, but I don't bring her to the office. And then there are really not many people I've made with babies. Just there's some folks who have like older kids, but so it's a room that we use for like meditation or podcasts. Fair enough. That's funny. I honestly thought you were about to say that there's a new law that says that after you reach a certain number of employees, that New York requires you have a meditation room. That's really what I thought. Cool. Cause I, I already knew, I knew the part about the breastfeeding room and like the whole mother's room thing. I, I, I that, that one I knew, but I really thought you were about to drop something on me there that was going to make me lose faith in society. <laughs> or I mean, I don't know, maybe that's a good thing, but that would just be a hilarious requirement. It would be hilarious, yes. And to be, it wouldn't be surprising, you know. I would be like, it makes sense, you know. It seems, it seems in line with most public policy. Eh, yeah, not too yeah. out of the ordinary. Well, Nate, er, Nate, geez, you're. I'm going to do the you. You named the company something that I want to call you, Albert. Yes. <laughs> How and, often and does you, that happen? You, does that happen all ever? The time. All the time. I bet. Like literally every time. Uh, every time I I meet 
anybody really these days. But that's a good that's a good sign because it means the Nate brand is more powerful than the Albert brand now. <laughs> and that makes yeah. me happy, you know. There you go. It also means the brand correlation between the two is strong, right? When I think mm-hmm. Albert, I think Nate. When I think Nate, I think Albert. This is a beautiful thing. You've done your job. And also, I really need that sweatshirt. If folks are just listening, this will be on YouTube later. But if if folks are just listening, yellow sweatshirt that just says Nate. It's dope. I want that. That is awesome, dude. I need one of those next time I come to New York. We got to make that happen. We'll make sure we reserve one for you. (sighs) Good, good. Well, now that we've covered all the most important things, let's get into the less important and actually talk about fintech. So take me take me back to your youth, man. Take me back to like the early days of Albert and kind of did you have any, you know, entrepreneurial bent as a kid? Where'd you grow up? Take take me back there so we can get to know you a little bit from that lens. Uh, so. All right. So I was born in Spain um, and I grew up between Barcelona and Paris. And ah, people think okay. that they're sort of like, you know, different countries and stuff, but they're actually, it's only a one hour flight between the two yeah. cities or an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and 30 minutes, something like that. Um, Most Americans I, have no sense of how far anything is in Europe. Everybody it's, okay. <laughs> it's, it's across so the board. Yeah. And I, both of my parents are, are from Spain, but I went to this school in Spain that was French school. So French was my second language. English is my fourth language. And I used to take that flight often. Uh, and often alone. Um, and that sort of gave me this global mindset of sorts that most of my friends in Paris or in Barcelona didn't really have. Uh, but at the same time, sort of semi downside is that it gave me a feeling that neither Barcelona nor Paris were quote unquote home. Um, mm. And anyway, that's sort of like my upbringing. And then um, in terms of... Uh, hints of being a founder you know in hindsight yes because both of my parents are founders um but and they run sort of different smes in spain of different risk profiles my father is a bit more of a serial entrepreneur with uh, lots of failed businesses and a few successful ones sure my my mother runs uh, an sme sort of slow and steady uh type business and but growing up i i didn't really have being a founder was not in my mental map at all. Um, I was hmm. uh, I was really into math and computer science, and I thought I'd maybe be a math teacher or a researcher or something because I didn't really know what jobs people had in math other than uh, being a math teacher, right? <laughs> uh, right. And that was what I thought. Um, and so no other signs. Of, in hindsight, it sort of makes sense, but it's not something that I was thinking growing up. Um, and then, yeah, you know, your typical stories of I used to like collect all this swag from conferences that my parents would go to and then sell it to my neighbors and make some money. Those kind of things. But <laughs> that's very different from Nate as a company today. So I'm not sure. Yeah. But I mean, still, it, it's it's still interesting, though, because it, it says a lot about your genetics, probably. I mean, there's probably some nature and nurture there based on the fact that both of your parents were were found or are founders. Um but I have family in France and uh, spend a good deal of time in Paris every year. And, uh, you know, not to ruffle any feathers, but not the most entrepreneurial group of people necessarily. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the, in- the incentive mix is not the same as it is in the U.S. And Spain is Spain definitely seems more entrepreneurial. Like there definitely seems to be more get up and go. But I would imagine you were probably one of the few people when you were spending time in Paris that was thinking about anything along these lines, even if it was just kind of selling swag or whatever, I imagine the, 
it was probably it was probably a short list in my experience yeah for sure so like i said it wasn't in my mental map at all i wasn't thinking oh you know when i grow right. up i'm gonna build my own company i thought you know what jobs could i have and that was it uh and then the my i started my first company almost by mistake because at the time i i had an offer to join a consulting firm in madrid and i was already uh in love with my now husband then boyfriend and i told him hey i need you to transfer my offer to new york and they said no new york is too competitive market we don't need you there you either take it in madrid or or it's gone and i said okay then I'm moving to New York because I'm in love. So, you know, I turned it down, which was the worst and best decision I made in my life. Uh, but basically, nobody would hire me in New York. And so I was forced to sell T-shirts. I had a friend in Paris who made T-shirts, who had a family business that made made T-shirts. And I said, hey, I'm going to buy a thousand T-shirts from you and I'm going to pay you that 90. And so that was sort of my way of like temporarily pay rent until I found a job. It just turned out to be a decent lifestyle business where i was able to keep paying rent and hiring people and then i built a wholesale business and then i built i built a direct-to-consumer business and so it sort of happened on its own and then looking back it's like oh it makes sense that like my default was okay i need to pay rent what do i do i need to make money how do i make money how do my parents make money okay they create value before they capture it so i'm going to go create value so it when I was forced to make that decision that was the first thing that came to mind as opposed to keep applying for jobs but by no means I had this all planned out. Well, yeah, it's a beautiful story in retrospect, though. I mean, nobody would have planned that out that way, but it's a beautiful story in retrospect. And I love it. I mean, it got you to where you are today. So when you were doing that, yeah. when you were doing the T-shirts thing, and I imagine you probably didn't think we'd pull on the T-shirts thread that long, but welcome to For Fintech's Sake. <laughs> Was that like a design oriented thing like were you taking creative license and kind of like making these shirts or were you trailing like taking an existing brand and reselling them um originally it was just taking an existing brand changing the label and and or mm. so it's like stuff that like that was uh left over from different seasons or different brands or whatever i would just get it pull it together and sort of create a collection yeah. uh and i would style it on my own like i would rag up a model and style it the best way i could and then i started to get a sense of what consumers wanted in that market and the and the types of uh, stores that were my customers and and then i started sort of getting some feedback and i said hey could i make this could i actually order this from you and i want this specific type of design and so i would one thing i came up with was this um um, uh, it was a polo shirt, but it was actually, it's a t-shirt fabric with the color of a dress shirt. So it looks like a polo shirt, but it's not like a traditional polo shirt anyway. Mm. Uh, and that was sort of unique and successful in this niche market. And yeah, I made a ton of money from it, but no, I'm not a designer, uh, by any means. Um, I guess I design sort of experiences or things, but I'm not like a designer by training. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, at some point later here, we're going to start talking about UX of Nate and that in and of itself makes me think that even if you're not the one doing the design, uh, the design seems to be a, a thing that you focus on and a first principle in your life, a, very much a key. So, so take us there, take us from kind of where you were, you know, selling t-shirts, hustling. Like I love this kind of, I mean, it truly is the American dream in terms of a story. So take us from there to Nate, were there pit stops in between or was it like, I have a problem, I need to go solve it. I'm going to go solve it. Uh, no, tons of pit stops. Um, so I, along the way, in those sort of three and a half to four years where I was building that t-shirt business, um, I 
made a couple of changes. So at first we launched sort of five five different regions in the US. Then I launched uh, the wholesale side of business in Australia, Japan, South Korea, India. Whoa. Uh, sorry, Canada. I miss Canada. Um, so, um, and then I launched direct consumer, even though I wasn't coining that term back in 2012, but I was, as far as I'm aware, one of the first sort of Shopify customers. Uh, and wow. that gave me sort of a glimpse of, you know, I, I remember telling my, my husband used to work at an agency that built websites for e-com companies. And he would laugh at me and say, what is this Shopify thing you're using? And I was like coding on liquid and like adding my t-shirts and stuff. Uh, yeah, and I, I kept saying to him, this is the future, you know? And and he said, what is this? this is the weirdest thing? Let me build you know, a real website that people are going to respect. Um, and <laughs> anyway, so four years later, um, the business was a, a decent size. I had 10 people full-time. Um, and wow. I sold it to one of my suppliers who wanted to vertically integrate and made some money, not much, but enough to pay some debts and and also uh, go to business school, uh, which, as we know, is an expensive endeavor. And so I did an MBA yes. at London Business School. And then um, I worked at Amazon doing private label strategy for their soft lines division. So you can see how it's sort of like went back into tech somehow it started with like very boring wholesale into e-commerce into you know amazon right which so that was sort of yeah. my way of of, of going yeah. full circle um and then i left yeah. in 2018 and i started nate it's continuously fashion forward though is something i'm noticing like even just the idea of going to business school in london is like you don't walk into you know the london school of economics or really probably into anywhere in london without you know having your shit together you don't walk in there with yeah. sweatpants and a bun on your head or whatever you know it seems it seems like seems like fashion has been a big part of your life and i guess design has kind of accidentally been a big part of your life too it sounds like um yeah i'm not sure uh that fashion has been that big of a part of my life but yeah i guess you could put it that way um one of the, the reasons for London or though, something maybe by accident yeah by accident uh, yeah the reason for london was also my husband because i i asked him i said look you know this is going to be uh i'm going to be home often but it's going to be two years right so i'll be in new york as often as i can but you got to pick you know do you prefer like a boston moment or a london moment and yeah. of course boston is easier uh, but he said, there's nothing to do in Boston and I'd rather have a transatlantic life. Uh, so, so he picked and he said, let's go London. So that, that was it. And that was great because I built a network. I there. Love it. Um, and when I started Nate, um, my first few hires were in London. My first angel investors were in London. And so that was a great sort oh, of wow. network that I built there. That was incredibly helpful. Yeah. So, so let's go to Nate, let's go to the founding thesis and especially that London part's interesting because I'm especially curious, was the thesis kind of American driven? Was it internationally driven? Kind of what, what was the, the seed of that idea? So the idea is simple, which is global e-commerce is what? $5 trillion this year, something like that. The U.S. represents about a fifth of that. It's probably going to hit a trillion this year. And Amazon has 40 one percent of the u.s market something like that 
Um, and there's another, let's for simplicity, you know, let's call it 60% of the US market that is uh, owned by 2.1 million retailers in a very fragmented experience for the consumer. And each of those retailers sort of don't realize that Amazon keeps winning. They sort of know, but they really don't know because in terms of their own businesses, they keep growing year over year because the more dollars shift from brick and mortar to to online. And and so they're running their business yeah. like, okay, we're growing, but they don't realize that on a relative basis, the size of the pie is getting smaller. Um, and, and the consumers gravitate towards Amazon because it's so easy and you can buy anything at the tap of a button. And, and so that, that I asked myself that question, can I build an Amazon like experience for the non Amazon economy? Can I give the consumer this consolidated view where they can buy anything and, and, you know, skip the checkout anywhere and hit all the pieces of value curve of the non Amazon economy so that they can consolidate all their shopping into a single place and not ever have to think about it again. Um, and so that was the, that was a question. Then, um, Around the time I had a friend who worked at UiPath, the, they were doing robotic process automation for uh, Fortune 500 clients. And they had started uh, adding a layer of intelligence to their robots. And they called it Smart RPA. Um, and so I asked myself, could I use Smart RPA and apply it to solve this problem? Because the alternative is either integrate with every single one of these retailers, which is going to take me 100 years, uh, or... Right. Um, consolidate the market which uh, number one you would need an insane amount of capital um yeah and wouldn't know very weird people <laughs> which i didn't know uh or and also it would go against my like i didn't want to live in that world both my parents are you know founders i love uh you know the middle class is a phenomenal way to grow the economy and i didn't want to live in a global duopoly either um so that was sort of the route uh and so i had those two pieces together under you know trying to know what i was trying to build which is the the Amazon equivalent for the non-Amazon economy, and then smart RPA as a way to deliver that. And then I was missing this piece, which is, okay, if I'm not restricted by supply side and I don't need to integrate with retailers, how do I ask, how do I tell consumers to instruct Nate on what to buy, right? And Mm. I stole it from Twitter. So Twitter, like I used to tweet uh, i still tweet every now and again but i used to um, uh copy urls uh from safari of, about an article for example like a new york times article and i would then go open the twitter app and create a new tweet and paste the the, the article url in that tweet and then i realized i didn't have to go through all that hassle i could just share that page directly from safari into a twitter app by tapping share on the browser then tapping twitter then tapping tweet right and I just kept doing that. I was like, this is so easy. Tap share, tap Twitter, tap tweet. Tap share, tap Twitter, tap tweet. So that was my aha moment. I was like, can I do this You know, with purchases? I would love to buy things this way. What is all this mess and all these filling out forms and all these like different 15 different checkout methods? Can I just do it this way all the time? And and that's the Nate flow. Tap share, tap Nate, tap buy. Tap share, tap Nate, tap buy. Um, so those were the three sort of insightful moments that made Nate come together. It is unbelievably simple. And I'm I, as you're talking about it, I, I was even thinking about this as between our kind of prep call and now and like, how, how do we, 
I mean, you did a good job of explaining it by the, you know, the article sharing thing, but it's so hard to explain the simplicity of it in words without being able to see it. But it truly, I mean, it's, it's, it's as easy as sharing a picture of your dog that someone sent you somewhere, somewhere else. Like, I mean, it's the level of speed, simplicity, and just like obviousness when I saw it the first time. I, I Albert, honestly, I was pissed off. Like the first time I saw it happen, I was a little bit annoyed because number one, how did I never think of this? I wouldn't have started the company. I wouldn't have done that anyways. But how did I not like think of the idea or like, haven't I not like, why was I not already upset that this didn't exist? And then I was also just so impressed by the amount of work that I know went into making something that simple. So that's where I want to go next, which is one for the sake of, we have a lot of bankers that listen. We have a lot of maybe less technical folks. So mm-hmm. RPA is a, as a thing in itself, like robotic process automation in and of itself is probably worth defining. And then I'd love for you to define smart RPA as well. If you would be, if you would be willing to kind of dictionary us up a little bit here. Yeah, for sure. So as you said, RPA stands for robotic process automation and I mean, when you think of automation, it's a buzzword that ha- that is people use often these days, but it's something that humanity has been doing for millennia uh, in different ways. Um, so we had this, uh, you know, this four-wheel thingy that horses used to carry, right? And then we said, hey, can we <laughs> yeah. sort of automate this process to uh, make sure that a hor- we don't need horses for this, right? And... And then we would just wash dishes and it was very repetitive. And we said, hey, could we just automate this somehow and figure out a way to not have to do this all the time? Um, And so we have a lot of things in our lives that automate repetitive processes. Um, And so really, it's only a matter of time before anything that you do that feels somewhat repetitive ends up being automated. The question is um, that degree of variability. And so um, companies that like UiPath that are, I can't speak for them on the do, but they're phenomenal companies. They sell, they sell um, software robots to fortune 500 clients, right? So let's say, and I don't, I don't know when it, I'm not sure if they are a client or not, but I'm making this up. Imagine Procter and Gamble has this accounting department and the, someone's job is to move stuff from one spreadsheet to another spreadsheet. And it's very repetitive and freeing that time could allow that person to do something else that's also accretive for the company. And so they'll hire UiPath or they'll build a UiPath robot that does that job on their behalf. Um, Now, the question is, what happens when that task is not 100% repetitive? What happens when it's slightly variable? So it's different every time that you have to do it. And that requires some intelligence, right? The good news is most of these tasks don't require general intelligence. You don't need a full human being's brain in order to move the stuff from one spreadsheet to the other if the variability is small enough. And and so that's what it is. And so buying things online is somewhat variable, but relatively repetitive. And if you try to buy, let's say I send you 10 different product URLs right now from 10 different retailers, and I ask you to buy them yourself using your fingers, by the time you get to the fifth one, you're going to be like, okay, like I'm tired, like I've done this. Or like you can probably multitask while you're doing it because it's, you know, it doesn't really require full attention as a human being, right? Yeah. And that is, you know, what we call the variability sweet spot. Um, so generally speaking, if you can teach a seven-year-old to make a decision in less than seven seconds, it's the type of micro decision that, uh, that a machine could learn how to do with enough data. 
One of the quotes when we first talked that I love that you said was machines should execute, humans should inspire. And this feels like that that kind of moment where it's free up, free up the human hands to go do something that's going to improve the world kind of a thing. For sure. And I I've been astonished by how much of how much innovation has gone into using AI to tell me what to buy. And, mm-hmm. you know, don't get me wrong. In some cases, it's helpful, but I, I generally don't like it. Um, I'd very much rather make my own decisions and then have a machine do the heavy lifting uh, for yeah. me. It's like when you go to a restaurant, imagine you go to the restaurant and then the server tells you, hey, Zach, you're going to eat chicken today. Please go to the kitchen and cook it. You'd be like, what? <laughs> No, like I'm going to eat salmon today. You go to the kitchen and cook it, right? Um, So that's sort of what's happening with e-commerce. And I basically said enough is enough, right? Like delegate all this like finger thing. Like what is this weird motion we do with our fingers? All It's ridiculous. Like we were not, humanity was not made to be doing this all the time. Um, So let's delegate that stuff and focus on on the stuff that we enjoy as human beings. Yeah. So how did you learn about payments? Right. Because everything you're talking about makes sense. Like the, the story, you know, it flows. You're in so many ways. It makes sense. Like you're the founder that is meant to build this company. The I'm with you. How the hell did you learn about this industry though? Because it's so deep. It's so wide. Everything that you're talking about doing. I mean, there's, there's reasons that people haven't done it before building. It's hard. So how did you teach yourself all this? And was there any like sense of you that was like, like, was that a competitive advantage that you didn't necessarily come from this like deep financial background? Cause you got to second guess some first principles or tell me, tell me how you learned. That's, that's a good point. I, I haven't thought about that, but it's, it's, it's probable. Um, I would say I'm not really good at anything in particular. Um, I'm just good enough at enough things to sort of, know the kinds of people that I want to hire and and how to manage them and motivate them. Um, that's my superpower. It's just a lack of superpower. I don't know. That's, uh, eh, don't don't downplay here. That's a superpower. But, I, but that, anyone that's yeah. had a bad leader in their life knows that is a superpower, but carry on. <laughs> there you go. And I'm, I, I've been that bad leader in the past in my first business. I was the worst micromanager in the planet. Like I was yeah. awful. And and so I realized if I wanted to build something this big and this ambitious, I had to hire people that were way better than I was in any of these areas. And, you know, there's commerce, there's social commerce, there is, you know, uh, AI, and there is payments, and there is, you know, there's so many things that we do at Nate, and we do all of those things quite well, but not because I'm good at any of those things. Uh, and so... In payments in particular, I knew that the business model would be around the payment. Um, I mean, it's not too, it's relatively obvious, right? If you think about like you're you're helping somebody buy something, so there's a payment involved. Uh, and so you, you might as well sort of find a way to monetize in that way. Um, but I didn't know, I, I probably under-assigned importance or not importance, complexity to it. I thought, oh, you know, payments is this thing that like, you know, you hire somebody and then you're done. Uh, and then I was like, oh shit, no, this is, this is big. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And it, it scared me a bit at first, you know? Um, and, and now, you know, 
and slowly and steadily, we we learn more things. I have an amazing payments team that has phenomenal background, and so they teach me things all the time. Yeah. So, did you have to build a lot of? I mean, the infrastructure on the payment side was that built from scratch? Were you starting with partners? Like, I don't know, the Dwallows of the world or whatever. I mean, I I guess you had to be able to take payment. It was did it start with any of the buy now pay later oriented thesis, or was the idea just like let's pay for a thing? Um, no, so originally we had no uh, intention to allow consumers to finance their purchases, and that is still a relatively small part of our business. We do it mainly for share of wallet and to make sure that those people don't mm. give up their privacy by going elsewhere and doing pay later. Yeah. Um, but probably just one in 10 purchases that people do on made are finance, something like that. Um, so it's a small part of our business, but... Um, and that came after we figured out our payments flow and our payment stack. So we first decided, um, okay, how do we add a layer of privacy for the consumer here? Um, and the decision was we're going to issue single-use VCNs for every purchase. And that way, the retailer would not be able to sell the last four digits of the user's card to third parties. Mm-hmm. And then we are going to become merchant of record. So we made that on purpose. We said, you know, we're going to be in the intermediary here. And for every purchase, there will be two payments, right? Um, and it was only after that that, you know, we realized, oh, we can we could also offer financing since we are already in the middle of the payment. So it's relatively straightforward to do it that way. And we just kept building on top that way. Um, but the... Figuring out the, our payment stack was working backwards from the kind of promise that we wanted to build for consumers. And then it's relatively a function of build versus partner versus acquire. And our payment stack is ever evolving. We have a variety of partners now um, and it's going to keep changing over time, but less focus on the unit economics, which of course matter, uh, yeah. but more focus on how can I quickly deliver the best possible experience for consumers without breaking our promises to them. And one of our promises is data belongs to people and not companies. What, how much in in user discovery and whatnot, I mean, how much is that the, I'm trying to think of the best way to ask this question. I guess it's really just how much does the privacy aspect resonate versus the simplicity aspect? And I'm sure it all resonates together, but I see a lot of companies in the space really selling the idea of, speed or selling the idea of fast, which maybe we'll come back to in a later question. Uh, But how much of it do you think is about that and the embeddedness versus like they care about me, they care about my data, they're protecting me. Do you get a lot of positive feedback about that? Yes, for sure. I think um, I'm yet to see, we haven't used privacy as a primary message yet. Um, I'm certainly the kind of user that would you know, buy and and that I've chosen privacy over over experience many times in my life. Yeah. Um, but I think what's very powerful is that with Nate, we provide you with the most seamless, consistent, and social way of buying, better than anything out there. Plus, there's no privacy trade-off, which I think we're made to believe that there is, right? Uh, and there was until Nate. And so privacy has certainly become the most powerful secondary message for consumers. And I still wonder if there is a large enough market that would 
adopt Nate for privacy only as a primary message. I certainly would, um, but I'm not claiming that that's the reason people use Nate. Uh, it's, yeah. it's definitely a very powerful supporting message when people when people find out. It seems, and this gets a little uh, geopolitical, this gets a little uh, philosophical if we keep going down this rabbit hole, but it does seem with the way the world is moving that privacy is only going to get more and more and more important and only become more and more and more of a selling point. So it makes sense that maybe it's not like your top thing, but it seems like it's a nice thing to have in the back pocket. Oh, for I'm sure. 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 I mean, I, yeah. I do customer service chats every now and again. I used to do them all the time, but now I can't. And it's fascinating to see how people react when they learn about this. Um, this is generation, and I didn't mention this, but our, our users are very are young consumers. It's a new generation of shoppers. And they grew up watching the social dilemma on Netflix. They're hyper aware of this stuff. They ask questions. Uh, they often give in uh, and give their data away if, if the experience is easier and there's no other choice. Uh, yeah. But when given the choice, they will always choose the private option. And that alone is incredibly powerful. And it gives me hope. Gives me hope too, actually, now that you phrase it that way, one of the things that scares me the most about the next generation and dear God, every time I say the next generation, I feel older and older. Um, but I, it really, it really does scare me, especially, you know, as, as we move into the quote unquote metaverse and, you know, pick your buzzword as reading something the other day that was talking about how when you're kind of getting into an oculus experience that in many of them they actually require you to record the experience to be able to speak in the experience i'm forgetting exactly what game this was and probably if you fact check me it may not be all of them um but it's it's just insane the i mean the data gathering and everything that we know about much less the stuff we don't so yeah it, bah, it scares the shit out of me and that gives me that gives me hope for the next generation the way you phrase that yeah it's it is very scary and i um i told the story to somebody the other day um i have this friend who works at a company e-commerce company in china and in certain categories, they can predict with 90% accuracy what somebody's going to buy 48 hours before they buy it. Oh, and Jesus Christ. They start sh in order to offer one-day shipping, because China is geographically so large, they start shipping the product uh, 48 hours before the users even bought it. And then if halfway through, it, you, you know, the, the machine is not sh that sure yet, then they start blasting that user with ads to make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if really uh, towards the end, the user doesn't buy it, then they stop it at the last mile. And that is still cheaper than not shipping it to begin with. And huh. this is not some, you know, future dystopian moment. This is happening right now. And I certainly hope that we go in a different direction in the West. And if no one else is willing to step up for it, then Nate will certainly be here for it. Man, I'm wishing that I was a gigantic family office or a hedge fund right now. So I could just give you $200 million because that is, yes, I, yes, that is an inspiring future. And what you just painted for me scares the hell out of me. The whole no code, like the zero COVID policy thing too. I was listening to something the other day talking about how China 
actually knows enough and has gotten to the point with the COVID stuff where if you buy, I think it was like a thermometer and some, and like one other thing, maybe it was like, if you buy thermometer and something that's like cold or flu related, that they will actually reach out and say that you're not allowed to leave your house again until you have a negative COVID test. Like what? What if I wanted to check the temperature on my soup? You know, I don't know. I mean, I'm just making stuff up, but it's wild, man. It's wild. So before we go all the way down the China rabbit hole and then, you know, (laughs) Xi Jinping cancels our podcast. um, (laughs) The the thing that I find fascinating is this. I mean, it's, it's an interplay, but it's also a kind of a dichotomy that you talk about, right? Between social and private. So tell me about, tell me about how those two interplay inside of Nate and how, how social anything can work with privacy at the same time. That seems innately, uh, innately contradictory. Right. It, it seems like it because we're made to believe that because every social product that we have touched, uh, in that we are not, we're not, you know, that we're not the customer in those products. We are the product, right. As users right. of that product. Right. And so, um, and so we're made to believe that that's the case, but it's not inherently the case. It's, it's all about who owns your data. So you could have the following two instincts. And I can tell you that Gen Zers certainly do. You can want to share what you're interested in and what you buy with your friends or in your extended group of friends to certain degrees of separation. So you could be somebody like me who shares, in this case, Nate lists with my husband and my coworkers and a few friends. And that's the extent of my sort of universe that I share things with. Or you could be a creator that wants to share those lists or those purchases with a wider audience. And that's fine too. It, you decide who to share with. Now, the question is, um, who else is going to have access to that information? It should just be the people who you decide to. It should not be mm-hmm. all these third-party companies just because you are making this payment or just because you are you know, navigating on this website or whatever it is that all these third-party companies get to keep all this information about you. And it's about ownership, really. And so with Nate, when you buy with Nate, um, not only um, we become merchant of record and we issue the single-use VCNs for purchase, but the transaction happens on our servers, not on your browser. So nobody can place a cookie on your browser saying that you bought that item. Ah. And so it's actually the most private way of buying online. Now, if you choose to then also, you know, share with your friends, then that's fine too, right? But your friends presumably are not going to go to Facebook and say, hey, Zach bought this, please record that, right? Like, And so right. that's the difference. It's about who owns that data and who, and, and who you choose to share it with. It makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, it's, it's just, it's opt-in versus forced everything i don't know just versus opt out i guess but you don't really even get to opt out in any of these situations i mean i've i think my facebook has been hacked by isis like 15 times now and i i have no idea really well i mean i yeah i i don't know about isis but when i was 22 or something i'm 30 now when i was like 22 i lost track of my facebook and like it's not mine anymore. I can't get back into it. The, like the, the email associated with it. I mean, I've, I've even made an effort to try like just for the sake of, you know, in case someone does eventually find it and they're like, Hey, turns out this guy's a terrorist or something like, you know, it's very obviously not me. If you look at any of my other social presence, but I'm, it's still there. I haven't been able to get it down. Facebook doesn't, I don't know, but it, it, 
doesn't seem like I have an option to go silent or like I have an option to just be rid of that, especially now that I don't have access to the email that I signed up for it with. Yeah, I think, you know, this is going to take a coordinated effort between uh, consumers demanding uh, ownership of their data, um, government agencies and regulators globally um, adding more consumer protection layers and enforcing them, not just like writing them in a nice piece of paper. Yeah, um, no shit. Yeah. And then also companies on the right side of history realizing that they could also make some good money if they are on the right side of history. And Apple certainly has realized this. Um, and they are, have been privacy advocates um, for f- from the beginning. And so, you know, you, you stand to benefit if you, if you choose the right side of history. So I think it's going to have to be a combination of those three things. Uh, but it's going to take a while. Yeah. I mean, it's a long-term, it's definitely a long-term thing. I mean, even just saying the term on the right side of history tells you that if I, you know, if my last name started with Z and I was sitting in a tower on high somewhere in California, I'd probably be thinking about the legacy I was leaving at this point because it ain't good. That's for damn sure. It ain't good. So I'm curious about a lot with you, but I'm especially curious kind of about how you think about the rest of the market. Um, well, before, before we get to the rest of the market, tell me about the partnership with Rapid. You guys announced that recently. What, do, what are y'all doing together and uh, and what's happening there? Um, I love Rapid. I love Arik and the team. Um, we have, so Nate has is only available in the US right now, but we have global ambitions for sure. And the Rapid team thinks in the same way that we think. Uh, from So if you think about from a product perspective at Nate, the main piece that that we need to customize per market is the payment stack, and right. and in Rapid we found a partner that is almost a one stop shop for us in a lot of markets, um, and and they share our view of how sort of we want consumer payments to look like globally. So uh, that partnership was a no brainer. Uh, we fell in love right off the bat. Yeah. We started working with them. Um, on a small product and then we met the entire team and realized how aligned we were and we moved very quickly to do a broader global partnership. That's awesome. What are the, what are the kind of geographies you're most excited about? And are there any geographies that you, based on the way, you know, based on the conversation we were kind of just having any geographies that you're not going to be able to enter or don't want to enter because of data privacy rules or anything like that? Yeah. Um, I think, Deep breath. It's all right. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, I, I'd say um, all Western democracies are exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. People, with, yeah. you know, large middle classes with high degree of education and people who care about um, owning their their shopping identity and at the same time consolidating their shopping into a single place. So usually like markets that are very fragmented in e-commerce, which is definitely the case for the US and Europe and other places like Japan and Australia and and so forth. Does anything close to Nate exist in any of those markets? Like I would think you being, what'd you say, quadlingual? English is your fourth language you said? Yes. Yeah. I would. So are any of those, or are those the obvious countries to start with where you already speak the language? Like, are there, are there nuances based on the language piece or can you just go like Europe since the, I mean, is, is there anybody yeah. there already nating? 
All right. So that's a good, that's a, those are two questions, but on the, on the one, yeah, on, yeah. The, on the question is, is anybody else doing what Nate does? The answer is no. Um, but the answer is there's a few people trying and that's good news. One, because it validates that we're not crazy, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and also I like the idea of having some players in certain markets to the extent that I want to launch that market. Um, then I may be able to do a partnership with them or an acquisition. And um, and sometimes it's a little bit easier to to do something that's not greenfield. I'm mm-hmm. monitoring it closely. I don't feel the need to rush to it. The US is such a big market and yeah. the rest of this year, we're going to stay here. Um, but th- I certainly see opportunities. And if not the entire value proposition of Nate, definitely some adjacencies enough where like it feels, it feels adjacent enough. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of language, I try not to self-project, even though I would love to see Nate live in Spain and France, where I grew up. I'm not going to let that bias me. Um, and so we're going to look at, you know, market attractiveness and geo and cultural affinity and so forth. Good for you not having an ego the size of the moon, because I, I, I know a number of founders in your position that would be like, oh, yeah, no, I'm going and taking over my home country first out of just sheer pride. And then we'll figure out what's next. I, I know. Could, I it's could so see that sad. And, yeah. and it's honestly, it's the fault of venture market. I'm telling you, there's so many of these investors that think that that ego is some sort of like amazing driver that they can just keep feeling and then harvesting. And there, that could not be further from the truth. Um, but it's, you know, it's not like, it's not those founders fault. It's like the investors that, that feel that it's just a self, self reinforcing mechanism and, and more, more Twitter wars and more stuff. It's, I don't know. Um, and it's, you know, it's certainly not the way I operate. Um, and, and yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I'm going to launch the markets that make sense for the business. Uh, yeah, 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 and, yeah. and then if Nate is incredibly successful, which I hope it is, it, it is today, but if it continues this path and becomes globally successful, uh, if I get up a little bit of time, instead of, um, going on a nice TV show in a country that where people know me, I'm going to probably go to an island and spend and have a vacation with my husband and my daughter. That's a probably, uh, that's, that's, that's probably the healthy mental thing to do. Probably the healthy mental thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's better. It's better than going on sky sports for no reason and talking about your business. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> good times. Good times. So speak, speaking of the funding market, I'm curious. I mean, you had KOTU and Canaan in your seed, which is becoming more of a thing. I actually, the company that I came from before I got to money 2020 was funded by those two. So they're, they're definitely starting to write earlier checks, but it, they're not small checks and they do come. They, they're not, they're not investing out of uh goodwill. You know, they're, yeah. they're definitely trying to get yeah. a return and they're definitely sure. trying to hit home runs. Um, so I'm curious, like what, what the story around seed was like with firms like that. And then I'm sure you had enough traction that by the, a, the story kind of told its own story. I said the word story 75 times. Um, but yeah, tell me about like raising the seed versus raising the a, and especially in the funding market that we're in today, I imagine that a was preemptive or at least maybe not the hardest round you've ever raised. 
No, definitely not. Um, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was definitely preemptive. And it was a 48-hour moment. But, but the, um, the so the seed round was tricky. It was a tricky round because when I started raising it, uh, we had no product. So I had been working on the technology for a year and a half. Okay. Uh, but it was no sign of the product. And I was like, oh, that's obvious. Of course, it's going to happen. And all the investors were like, no, no, but like, where, where's the product? Um, right. So it took months and it, talk, it took dozens of no's. Uh, so I kept building and I kept uh, bridging the business myself as needed. Um, and by the time that we had an alpha version of the product, then it became very competitive round. Um, so to me, it was less about KOTU or Canaan or both. It was more about the people behind them. And specifically, uh, Matt and Laura, who are still both on Nate's board today, uh, brought very different skills to the table. Um, and I wanted the best of both worlds. So I asked them to do it together. And I'm so happy they agreed. Um, it was, it was, you know, uh, it was a, it was a long negotiating night, but we made it happen. And then at the A, um, I was getting ready to go to market. I was planning on raising, um, but it ended up being preempted. And that's often the case these days, as you know. Um, so I just had to make get comfortable with it and, and try to make decisions quickly. Uh, Koto and Kanan were incredibly supportive, luckily. And uh, and then we brought in Renegade and Forerunner. In that case, it was also less about the firms and more about the people. And specifically, Roseanne and Brian made the dream team for that stage of the business that we were at. Yeah. What is it about these humans? I, I don't, based on first names, I don't know. I, and even if you said their last names, I probably might not know who they are. These are not small firms necessarily. Um, but what was it about these humans that you felt was additive? Like what, what were they bringing that wasn't there before? Um, I mean, a number of things, right? Um, in, I, each of them has their own sort of investing experience and they've seen different types of companies in different stages sure. and different sectors. Um, sure. And since Nate touches on so many different things, right? Nate is like, we're adjacent to pay later companies, gifting companies, uh, checkout companies, uh, you know, consumer fintech or neobank companies and social yeah. commerce platforms. And, and so, you know, having folks who had seen a history of enough businesses surrounding that intersect those intersections is important and it's really hard to find that in a single person um so building the cap table we, i build the cap table intentionally to make sure that they serve sort of different functional and sector areas of of knowledge and also stages of the business right so for example one of the things that i loved about renegade at the a was their focus on um at a period that they call super critical, which is this sort of inflection point, post product market fit, pre scale, where yeah. you need to build the team and the processes to get you there, professionalize leadership team, you know, and create a structure. Um, and that's what's happened at Nate in the last year. So a year ago, we were, I think, 25 people, and now we are 120. So like that inflection Ooh. point, it's a bit, it's good growth, but it's, uh, it's also the right growth, right? Like, and so that um, thinking through cap table in that sense um, has been important. And then they all have a common denominator, which is they're all very people first. So Matt, Laura, yeah. Roseanne, and Brian are all very much um, 
appreciative of the kind of business I'm building in terms of the culture and the people. So at Nate, we have, um, we all work in person. Uh, so we're investing heavily in office space in New York. You contrarian, you contrarian. Yeah, we work in person and it's an investment, right? Like, and so many folks are like saving money by hiring all these places and that's fine too, but that's not what we do. We are a design first organization, which is, sounds better than it, than it is trickier to actually implement. And when you come into the office, you see how it feels very similar. Like the feeling you get is similar to opening the app, right? So all of this oh, is intentional wow. and it takes work and it's not that easy to explain. And so the certain investors would be very dismissive when hearing that story. Or when I say that sometimes I prefer to hire a candidate that has three or six months of ramp up, um, as opposed to the candidate that was would already you know hit the ground running, and and as a result we have thirty five nationalities, seven religions if you count no religion, forty nine percent women, and it, an incredibly diverse and and thriving workplace. And and we all and you and we see each other all the time in person because we work together. Right. So it's it's very dynamic and it's the kind of thing that if you're very short sighted. It would be very easy to just cut costs and and do it in a very different way. Um, and so all of these investors have that in common. They understand that I'm building for the long term and that I'm not cutting corners. That's wild, man. I, I rewatched. Are are you a Virgil Abloh fan at all? No, I'm not. No. Um. Do you know Do you know who he is? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he I'm passed just, away. I recently. haven't followed much. I know. Yeah. He. I, I saw. Him yeah. I think. I mean, based on everything you're saying, honestly, I'll, I'll send you something later. He did this. It's like an hour and a half long talk that he did at Harvard's design school about design language and design principles and kind of how every human should have their own design language and design principles. And it really, I mean, it's Virgil's fuck, like gets me emotional just with how the impact this man's had on my life. Um, but it's, it's really just the idea of values, right? It's the idea of like, you have a set of values and he just calls them design principles. He call they're more like exterior, but they also impact that interior, you know, your soul and everything else. And it sounds like really what you have is a really strong set of values and a really strong set of design principles that it sounds like innately would not work without an incredibly diverse culture. Like if you were, even if you were like if you were all white dudes or all black women or all any one specific, you know, group that this thing would not work with just the way that you're thinking about building it and the multi-tenancy and everything else. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, really interesting. The overlap the between fashion fit. Yeah, exactly. And that's why sometimes when I talk to other founders who have a very different um, strategy in the way they're building the team or their product or their go to market, I don't try to impose my, the way I think and the areas that they are discussing at that time, because they may not make sense on the whole. Right. And, right. and so, yeah. So the way we've built all of those three things, um, are consistent with each other and they reinforce each other. And that doesn't mean that they work for other companies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very mature statement that a lot of, uh, people much more mature than you are trying to force their, uh, their perspective on, on many others. And I'm, I, I like the way you're thinking about it, which speaking of, so 25 to 120, that's what you just said, right. In like a yeah. year or maybe a little less than a year. Yeah. How, how have you scaled? How has Albert grown as a human to be able to go through that whole experience? Like, do you have mentors? Are you just 
holding on for dear life like how how have you holding how on for you, dear life is the better yeah. is the better yeah. representation <laughs> uh yeah no I, ha- I have some mentors too um some of the early investors i've made before the institutionals were a lot of angels um and i rely on them heavily and it's also an incredibly diverse cap table in that sense ecom people payments people ai people you know um, all sorts of folks, design, uh, marketers. Um, and I rely on them often. Um, and I rely on mentors who have sort of guided me throughout my life outside of, outside of Nate, just thinking through who I need to be in this phase for Nate. Um, and the, the transition in the last year for me has been this thing that I read in books, but not as much. I didn't have like a tangible experience, tangible it didn't really click until it happened, which is the transition from yeah. founder to CEO, right? When you are, uh, when uh, you are sort of the driver of any every piece of energy that happens in the organization and functions that are not built, and then getting it to a point where every function is somewhat built and operationalized. And of course, we're still hiring; we're hiring a hundred more people, um, but I have a button in every function now, and so adapting my role to that moment uh is um is an art on on its own and i wouldn't have been able to do it without uh mentors for sure is it still a daily practice are you still talking yourself out of micromanagement muscles like are you still like oh shit Ah, ah, no i don't want to go in there i don't want to go in there quite the opposite i i we go through rounds of performance reviews once a quarter for everybody at nate and and the team reviews me too right so i I read my own review uh which is (laughs) A good thing and a bad thing. I'm like, okay, I like this, and then I hate right. that or whatever. Um, yeah. And but the feedback I get, the 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 widest sort of the most common constructive feedback I get is uh, that I don't that I'm too loose, that I, I give too much lane, almost. And I'm like, wait, wow. what? Like I used to get the complete opposite feedback. Like before business school, I was the most insane psycho micromanager and right. now i get the opposite feedback and i'm like wait what wow. am i missing something but it sort of gives you an idea of the kinds of people that it, that need attracts we're very much like look here's your desk here's your laptop here are the company okrs here are the sort of cross-functional team specific ones and this is your role and go figure it out there's no nobody's going to handhold you you have to figure it out on your own um, and that creates a lot of lane opportunity for people to uh, to prove themselves and build the careers that they want to build, as opposed to pigeonholing people. And in fact, we have this policy that I used to get a lot of heat about, and now people are like, giving me giving me less heat about. Uh, it's called uh, work title freedom. So we we allow people to choose their titles with certain guidance. It's not that you can wow call your, yeah call your sure. CFO or anything. But, There's some lanes, yeah, yeah. But it sort of means you know if you find yourself spending a, a large enough chunk of your time in an area that was not scoped for your role, but that nobody's doing and you clearly have to do. First of all, thank you for doing it because clearly the company needs that. Second, if you want that piece of work to be reflective, uh, reflected in your title, then why not? Why do you have to go through some like new approvals and stuff? Like just change it, you know, just make it reflective of what you're doing so that other coworkers and internal and external people understand what do you do. I absolutely love that. I think I think it was a an Andreessenism. I think it was Anderson. Andreessen. Um 
that said the the cheapest the cheapest comp you can give someone is a title i'm pretty sure he said that yeah. and then there's like this you know this big uh big back and forth in society where it's like no we have director level head level and you know number one i just love that as an ethos ethos i think it says a lot about like the autonomy you're trying to create but also one of the canaries in the coal mines for me as I don't do like a lot of angel investing or anything, but I have a couple angel investments that are actually just friends that I trust that I would be donating the money, even if I never got it back, like whatever, I love them. So it doesn't really matter. But if the first thing that they do before they start building product or like in the, as they're building product is also decide if director is more senior than head or head is more senior than director and how this title fits into like, that is where that is where VC dollars get wasted and where companies go to die, I think, is like the corporatization, the company building before the product building. And I love the giving the like scaling the scaling that vibe without necessarily like. I don't know. I don't know. Not shooting yourself in the foot and giving people the autonomy it just it, it's it inspires folks i'm sure because that yeah. is that in of itself it's so small but i'm sure it makes a huge difference in the way people think about their day-to-day and yeah. makes them more of a self-starter i'm sure yeah so you know what's interesting is that uh i'm gonna go a little bit philosophical or, or mathematical here if you don't mind but uh sure. when i was yeah. a teenager i might i, I might would... not follow the math but yeah i, I can go philosophical so with you at least <laughs> i was as a teenager i i i was fascinated with this notion of um are we ever going to be able to distill complex systems into a set of basic axioms that if you put them together mm-hmm. they create the entire system and mm. and that is was proven untrue by a german mathematician in 1931 um that's basically said that any system that is more complex equal or more complexity to the arithmetic if you create a set of axioms to sort of recreate that system um they they will not be both consistent and exhaustive so if you try to make them exhaustive you'll reach exhaustiveness but but you will eventually be able to derive two propositions from them that are inconsistent with each other. And so um, instead, that sort of goes back to, that's any ecosystem. Presumably building a, an organization's culture is way more complex than one, two, three, four uh, right. system, right? And so um, when I designed the values, frameworks, and processes for Nate, which included these five principles that we live by, I made sure that they were consistent with each other um, and consistent with, uh, with certain uh, frameworks and processes like absolute word title freedom and whatnot, but not exhaustive. Meaning mm-hmm. the organism has to sort of build on its own as opposed to caging it and saying, this is the scope, the final scope of what it is. If you try to build that up front and be prescriptive about it and people have to work backwards within that cage, then it doesn't become what it has to be. And so it's better to pick a set of rules of, or axioms that may not be exhaustive, but that are very cohesive with one another and let the rest sort of fall into place. That's fascinating. I think that that is a that is an explanation that maybe every single CEO should sit through, think through here before they write down their corporate values, because it's is amazing to me how often how often 
the 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 best laid plans and the best intentions that get so 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 specific actually end up killing people's creativity killing people's autonomy killing people's ability to be themselves which like dude i haven't talked to you for that long and i mean we've been on what like an hour now or something but i can tell that you value individuality you know i don't i don't know if that's one of those principles but i can tell very clearly just based on who you are that that is one of your personal principles if it's named or not. So I don't see you building a culture that would necessarily put anybody in a box or put anybody in a, I don't know. And, you know, put it limit anyone in any way, at least consciously. I mean, I guess sometimes, you know, you got to put those lanes up, like you said, but as much autonomy and as much, as much freedom, as much creativity as you can give, it sounds like that's what you're aiming to have as a culture. For sure. Thank you for noticing. And 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 the and the interesting piece is that what I'm claiming is that it's good for shareholders, including the team, of course. But it is good. It creates value for the organization. A lot more uncapped value, uncapped potential, basically. And so yeah. that's the interesting piece that most people sort of see as a trade-off, or you have to like cage people and be very, you know. Uh, I mean, it works for certain companies, though. I'm not going to say it doesn't. Like, there are some phenomenal companies that are very, they're run very differently that are doing phenomenally. Um, but I guess if you're trying to create something that doesn't exist yet, um, it's often easier to grab a bunch of awesome and different human beings that are very unique in their own right and put them in a room together and let it happen. Yeah. So one of the things as we've been talking this whole time, you know, I mean, you've got this payments product. This is a fintech podcast. I am a gigantic fintech nerd with your ethos, with your philosophy, with the way you think about the world. I got, I got to know, are you thinking about taking the Nate product and expanding the Nate product geographically and just growing the footprint across the world? And or are you thinking about adding additional financial products because your ethos and everything else you're talking about, like I could if I'm going and buying something at Nike. Could you, you know, sell me a share of Nike or something like that, right, in a way that isn't like predatory or selling to a high frequency trader or something like that? I'm wondering if you've put thought into that or if there's any future plans around any of that. Um, I think I can't say that Nate has. uh an intention today to play in spend categories or invest or spend money movement categories outside of e-commerce. Right. But right. It, Banking it does, basically just like right. buy stuff, but yeah. But it does make sense to me as a user uh, to the extent that you trust an organization to consolidate not only all of your shopping, but all of your payments in a centralized and secure environment. It does make sense to me as a user. Am I, driving towards that not necessarily i'm also hoping that a lot of other companies do the right thing for their categories too um and and those would be phenomenal partners yeah um and but there's an in between too there's a lot of there's more payments products that we can build that are that would sit very nicely on top of our current value proposition um and a lot of those will be announced later this year but they are very um accretive to what you already see on Nate, nothing too detached um, because it's working and we're just going to keep doing what we're doing because it's working. And so, um, yeah. And then, and then beyond that, we'll launch other markets for sure. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It makes sense. It makes sense, especially, and you don't have to say anything about this, but 
one thing that it seems like you're really well positioned to do is help folks save actually and help folks save for those purchases. And it seems like you live in and live in that spot where you don't have a brand that would make them feel guilty to save. You have a brand that would actually make them hopeful about saving, right? Hopeful and have a reason to do it. And I love that. There's, there's so, there's such a small number of brands out there today that are helping people save in a way that doesn't make them feel poor, I guess. And it seems like that's, I guess another thing that resonates with me about your brand is that like, it feels rich even without, it feels rich because of the colors it feels and like not even rich, like, you know, Epstein wealthy, gross rich, but like rich in its color, rich in its hue, you know, like, you know, in a very positive way. So I hope, I hope you guys do lean further into more financial products. I think you could, you could do some good stuff for the world. And especially with the, especially with the kind of, you know, average age of the human that's using Nate and whatnot, like it seems, seems like you could do some awesome stuff and maybe, uh, maybe keep people, uh, in the woods and out of the metaverse for at least a certain amount, amount of time. We'll try that. Let's talk again in a year and we'll tell you and I'll tell you how it's going. Let's do it. Let's do it, man. Well, the, the final uh, the final question here before we wrap up is how can the For Fintech Sake audience help you? So you mentioned you were adding another 100 gigs, maybe uh, maybe point out where folks could go to apply for jobs, things like that. But what can uh, what can the listener base do to help you? I mean, definitely that uh, we're hiring in New York City and in London. We have two awesome offices New York City offices in Flatiron Madison Park Avenue South right next to Madison Square Park and our London office is in King's Cross um, we are hiring engineers designers uh, payments folks marketers data analysts sort of any function you can think of um, and uh, you can check open roles at slash careers uh, or on LinkedIn or honestly, just reach out, download the app, open chat, say hi, like we are very friendly. Um, and then what else do I want the world to know? Um, I guess to reinforce the notion that you can have a seamless, consistent and social experience without giving away your data to third parties. It is possible. Um, we're made to believe that there is a trade-off, but there is no trade-off. And, and your answer is innate and I'm, hoping that more companies will figure that out. In the meantime, we're here for you. So please download Nate and sign up and, and give it a go. And if you want to follow us on social media, where most places are at Nate underscore app or at Nate on TikTok. I love it. I love it. Albert, thank you. Listeners, what he just said, you know, we have a lot of folks on that say download the app, but in this specific case, I, I really, I, w I would second what Albert just said. This app, even if you are not necessarily going to make it, you know, your number one purchasing spot, whatever, the way that it gets your brain thinking and the way that it makes you think about the future of UX, like download it, experience it. It's one of the most unique experiences out there today. So go do that. Albert, thank you, man. I really appreciate the time. We got to do this again, like you said, in a year in person. Yes. Um, and we just got to hang out in person before then. So we're going to make sure. it happen, man. We'll talk Let's again soon. Thanks for, taking, thanks for taking the time, my friend. It sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining the conversation, everybody. I hope you enjoyed our time with Albert Saniger at Nate. Jump into those show notes to learn more and find out everything there is to know about Albert and Nate. 
And of course, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app today. And if you want our quickly becoming monthly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, folks, stay healthy, keep your head high, and don't slap nobody. You know, it's, it's in poor form. See y'all next week.